Today, my guest is Aishwarya Anantabutla. Aishwarya completed her BS and MS in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science from MIT. She's pursuing a PhD in the MIT Media Lab's Responsive Environments Group, exploring ways to capitalize on our knowledge of human perception, cognition, memory, and attention, to rethink traditional paradigms for audio capture, representation, and retrieval. Hey, Aishwarya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Madhav. Thanks for having me. W... MBR 88.1 Yeah yeah oh, can you share a little bit about like how is uh, that part of your life Yeah sure WMBR is um so basically I mean this wasn't pre MIT this is definitely post MIT and, and yep. here as a graduate student so um I think it's now been two or th- two years plus since I joined so basically WMBR is um the college radio station on our campus here at MIT um and you can um basically sign up as a stu- if you're a student it's a lot easier you just sign up to go and host a show of your choice it can be a music show it can be a talk show how are you associated with it like you run a a, a show on that mm-hmm. on a daily basis weekly basis how does that work yeah so i think i started in 2017 if i'm not wrong um and I ran a f- for you know different a season is basically a semester long right so it follows our academic exactly. calendar um and so I did a few different seasons of a few different kinds of shows um the longest running one which I'm again running this summer is uh is called Post It Wall it's a talk show that involves yeah inter- where I basically interview kind of similar to this actually right <laughs> Very interesting yeah uh you know interview other people in the community and ask them to share their stories basically and here I'm at MIT I'm in the heart of Boston and um being an MIT student is something that uh there there are a lot of really wonderful opportunities and privileges that were presented with being here I mean there's a there's a campus radio across the street from me yeah. um that I can you know capitalize on lots of other activities lots of people to meet and learn from and so I'm starting to realize that if I don't kind of seize the moment and make time for these things now i i don't think i will ever be able to no, do that well do you like for example do you use any tool or do you sort of say between these hours and these hours i this is dedicated for my research or i mean i'm trying to understand how you structure your life daily to help you do all these things that you want to do yeah um i don't know that this works for everyone or that it's it's a, you know really the right way to go about this but um i compartmentalize quite a bit and so if um i i actually kind of intentionally try to avoid multitasking during the work day and so you know much you know maybe to the annoyance of, of some of my other why friends or so on right so everyone knows that i basically check and respond to whatsapp messages or text messages yeah what what is what is the story of the daydream company or daydream. Uh, your inclination or your your love for short stories and um poetry and things like that yeah Where did that come from um so the the daydream company is actually also a production that we did for wmbr for the radio I see. um but it yeah it you're right it actually the whole thing started because um i really like to to write also to read but um but to i'd lo- you know since i was a kid i love writing short stories writing poems um, mm. writing songs once in a while uh and so i think 
actually, people don't think about this um, at MIT, but one of the highlights, I think, of my undergrad experience was uh, humanities faculty that I got to interact with, um, taking a series of short story writing classes and poetry writing classes and so on. Um, at some point, um, there were a bunch of short stories that I had written through those classes and so on, and um, I kind of toyed around with the idea of turning some of those and then some other ideas in my head into the short scripts. Um, mm -hmm. And I was really fascinated by this idea of, of radio plays, where you really have to kind of <sighs> enact an entire narrative, a story, but there's no visual. No visuals and... That's a whole other ball game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, both in, t in terms of bringing color and emotion through dialogue delivery and through voice, but also, um, you know, sound effects and, and mm -hmm. you know, simple things, right? Like entrances and exits. People yeah. can't see anything. How do you... Can't see anything, so you kind of have to show it to them, quote unquote. Right. <laughs> um, I actually got this idea from, from my grandmother. She used to write and conduct children's radio plays back in India. In uh, All India Radio or something like that? I think so. Because I, I think those um, um, this radio plays were very popular yeah. before the televisions came on the scene in India. All India Radio, which is their national uh, radio uh, mm -hmm. program, they would have local uh, programs in different languages and they would have a big part of that would be um, place. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't know if it was all India radio or it was something else, but I do remember her, obviously I have no recordings of this or no, just it's hearsay, you know, from, from her and from people who are, who are now a generation above me, but who were children at that time. Plays and I was I was just fascinated by that idea. How does one story and write it in, in the form of a script that can still convey the essence of the story without visuals? Um, switching gears a little bit. I mean, this is sort of really fun to understand that facet of Aishwarya, which is sort of really fun-loving and creative. And um, but I know there's a lot, lot more going on. Um, uh, in your life right now, and um, just take us back a little bit into your journey. How how your journey to MIT started? Like, what got you interested in technology, and why MIT? Mm -hmm. uh, so, more curious about what kind of got you started on that path, and at what age was it? Right from beginning, you were super curious about technology, and you're playing with gadgets. Your dad brought home. Or what, what was it like? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I should preface this by saying, um, you know, I think now if I were to, with the credentials I had at that age, at age whatever, 16 or 17, if I compete with the kids that are applying for admission now, I don't think I stand a chance. <laughs> Things are moving so fast and kids have so many more opportunities than I had. It wasn't that long ago. It was uh, eight <laughs> when years. When was it? It was just eight years ago. Eight years ago, yeah. So, um, yeah, for me, though, I... It was, I can't say that there was this, you know, one eureka moment where I decided, oh my God, I love tech and this is what I want to do. I think um, it's kind of a testament to how much uh, the forces in a household or you know, how much the people in your life kind of can really shape shape your interests um, in a positive way. Right? There was no mm -hmm. pressure to do anything in 
Uh, but my uh, my dad and my grandfather are both engineers. Um, my dad graduated from IITM, um, and then, or he did his master's at IITM in, in robotics. Um, and so he was he was always fascinated with robotics. Um, and, and for he those who don't know, I mean, I'm probably sure everybody knows, but IIT Madras is, is what yeah. you're referring to. There we go. Yes, IIT Madras. Um, and he sort of had this running interest in, in robotics. Um, he, you know, given the opportunity, he would have I think, done a PhD or, you know, mm -hmm. continued to, to work as a research scientist in that area. But unfortunately, um, he ended up starting a slightly different career. Uh, but he kind of built that environment for us at home. There was always these you know, robot gadgets that would come for Christmas <laughs> presents. There's all sorts of projects that he would encourage us to do. Whenever he would travel as a consultant, he would uh, buy us models of, of you know, bridges or famous buildings from the area. And then my sister and I would just Put enjoy together. putting them together. And yeah, I think we have most of them still hung around the house. Um, and so these all kind of these little steps um, that you know not only one chose uh, a young girl, a kid or a young girl that um, this is somewhere that I'm going to apply their their skills or their talents or their interests, but also um, two that you know perhaps I could be good at this. Right? Uh -huh. It's school doesn't always give you that. <laughs> um, so. That's a very, um, yeah, that, that itself is that, like, that small bulb going off moment, like, perhaps I could do it. It's not like, yes, I know I'm going to do this, and this is what it is. It's not that big revelation. It's more of a, yeah, perhaps I could do this. This is an option for me. Yeah, this idea that it's an option, and, and perhaps, contrary to you know, societal norms or stereotypes, perhaps I could succeed at it, or, yeah. or I could, you know. At least put up a good fight. Right? Um, Were you always a fighter? I was apparently, yeah, pretty pretty rowdy vocal <laughs> kid. At least you know until I hit middle school age or something. <laughs> I beat, don't know. Beat um, the boys and girls up in the class in the middle school. <laughs> no, 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 not, not that, that kind of a fighter. <laughs> not that kind of a fighter. Very talkative, very high energy. I think. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things I'm I'm really grateful for. I didn't go to one of these, um, so to a private school or to a charter school or anything. I went to public high school in Long Island. Um, it's the Kings uh, Park. Is that what it's called? Kings Park High School. Kings Park High School in Long in Island. Yeah. Kings Park, New York. Yeah, uh, eastern end of Long Island. Um, they um, had a few um, actually really good, but small programs for kind of pushing kids forward who were academically motivated or who were interested in doing research. And so they oh, were, research. I was going to say STEM, but it's actually more than that. No, it's actually research specifically. Oh, wow. They would pick up a handful of kids um, in the end of middle school. And if you have good grades and you're motivated, um, they would put you in this program where they basically pair you with nearby universities and you can basically be a high school intern and, and get to do some basic tasks for them, slowly learn the ropes, and then, you know, your senior year of high school take on some slightly more yeah, involved project and then write a paper and so on. Um, and so I think that was really the major stepping stone too. And this was just part of your regular public school, but they had a separate, like a 
a program that was created to encourage people who were inclined and want to do that. You had the good fortune of having such mentors in school. Um, was one such, I, I think I might be mispronouncing the name, but Jane Shock? Yeah. Is that? Oh man, you're, you're really good at Googling. <laughs> yes. I didn't even know that this information was public. <laughs> wow. Did I say that name right? Jane Shock? Jane Shock, yeah. Oh. Well, how was she, like, I, I did see uh, her um, good remarks about how Aishwarya deserves this win for Intel Science Fair competition or something of that sort. Uh, was she one of your mentors? She was. Um, she was one of, there's basically one or two teachers that run this program and they kind of split up the students across the four years in high school and, and mentor them through the program. Oh. Um, she was also my high school physics teacher. <laughs> they, they, it's just like a double, double role that they play, right? You know, if I had to say, if I had to, you know, pick a handful of the most influential human beings mm-hmm. that I have encountered, the people that have single-handedly shaped my aspirations. Yeah. She's probably at the top of the list. Um, well, I, I've heard many stories from many people like that, where there was this lady, there was this teacher, there was this person in my life when I was 17, whatever, that really shaped and changed the way I, I looked at things, uh, the perspective shift. And so you would consider Jane Show as one of those. Uh, how, in particular, did she affect you positively? Um, you know, it's not that she necessarily introduced me to a new discipline or you know, taught me to think about things differently, but she really kind of saw a spark in me or saw the potential that I maybe had at that time and really pushed me to try and do most of it. Um, which involves, obviously, to some extent, motivating me, but also her being a, a, a very involved mentor. So reading everything that I would, every you know draft of a proposal or a paper that I would write, staying after school for you know, two or three hours, with me and another student as we practiced our presentations for these science competitions. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's intense. That's insane, actually. I mean, to have that kind of um, deep interest in a student to push them because they can see the potential. That's insane. Wow. What a and gift, it, huh? It's very interesting because it's, it's sort of this ideal exercise in, in detachment, right? Because they, they put so much, they sort of invest so much time and effort into a student. And after four years, I mean, maybe these people send an email once in a while, but <laughs> just, you're, you're gone, right? You're off the hey, grid. You, hey, you said it. Did you send her an email? When was the last time you did that? Um, it, was a, it was a few years ago. It was actually an undergrad. I, I sent her an email when I had one the research competition here. And so I wanted to thank her for being a part of the whole. Um, were there any things that uh, guided you, helped you in your um, journey to get into MIT? Yeah, undergrad admissions is such a, you know, kind of a, a blurry. You know, it's a black box. It's a big black box, yeah. It's, it's really hard to say. Um, and, and also because it's been, it's been nearly a decade, which is a little embarrassing to say. <laughs> Um, 
But I think if I had to give one advice, you know, one piece of advice about this to people that are in that phase now, it's um, I think being quote unquote kind of breadth first, well-rounded is, yeah. is kind of overrated. If I heard from the people around me when I first you know, met these people in undergrad, um, excluding myself for a minute, uh, uh, you know, I would find these, these amazing individuals that were their, their strong suits or their skill sets, the things that kind of got them into MIT were maybe these, these three things. They were really good at math competitions. They were an all-star oboe player and a, some, you know, something else. But the, the point is there are these handful of things that they really took really far and then some sort of had wonderful parents that were willing to you know, put me into these things and <laughs> got lucky. Nice, nice. Um, and you've also went to grad school at MIT. Um, I work more on the, the sort of computational audio and audio signal processing side of things. Um, sort of a few different things going on, but at a high level, it's this idea of uh, you know, cognitive scientists and psychologists for a long time have given us models of perception and cognition in audition, right? So the way that we perceive sound both sort of at the interface to hearing, but also in terms of memory and then all of these other higher level complicated causes. We haven't yet taken, you know, this, this information, these, this understanding and applied it to the way that we capture audio um, or, or the way that we replay and listen to audio, right? And so these things kind of, the technology hasn't met the humanistic side of things yet in this space. Um, if also, I may break that and unpack that a little bit, that, that's a lot for me. So what do you mean by like, we haven't tapped how these audios perceived by humans and how, um, for example, I think you, you, you published a paper around the intrinsic memorability of everyday sounds. <laughs> I'm curious, like, can you unpack that? That sentence is kind of intimidating to me. Sure. Um, I guess simply stated, um, not everything that we hear or that we're presented with as a sound, uh, not everything we hear we perceive and not everything we perceive we remember, right? Mm -hmm. But if I were to stick a microphone in that same, in the same setting, in this hypothetical context, mm -hmm. you're going to record everything. Everything. But it's still just the sound. Every, where, where we define sound as a variation in air pressure, right? So yeah. all of that that transpires is, is captured. That's what a recorder is mm -hmm. the microphone. Um, you or I standing in the place of that microphone will, you know, quote unquote, not record all of that. Ah, uh, I see. That's how our brain works, right? I see. Ask, okay. If I take an exit survey later, an hour later. Probably missed 30% or 50% of what was said. You'll actually miss 80% of it. <laughs> This, this sort of thing, which is like perhaps a transcription task or surveillance task, is not where you want to be using this kind of, I see. calling it like cognitive compression or cognitive summarization, right? This is, yep. you're, you're recording this to obtain some sort of specific information that you'd like, and you'd like to go back to, and you know exactly what you want to go back to for whatever reason. Right. We're talking about people, so audio life living is now this thing where people just wear around a recorder or a camera for, you know, hours and days on them, right? And it captures um, the goal 
what you want to get out of that is something aesthetic, something experiential, not exactly who was where and who was saying what. Right? So the point is people might replay that audio and just kind of enjoy the sound of uh, or the nostalgia that comes back when you hear, oh, my grandmother was cooking in the kitchen, she was humming something, I hear the pressure cooker going off, and it reminds me of that setting. Or, you know, this recording is so indicative of the lobby of this building because, you know, the door closes in a particular way and I hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is to kind of apply these set of algorithms to create these different experiential outcomes based on different settings that are kind of applied, that, that are the algorithms that are applied to this audio. So I see. Um, if we model attention really well, and then we run sort of just pretend it's an attention black box and we kind of feed all the audio that we've recorded over hours through this black box, we can do one of two things. We can take all of the audio that you might attend to mm-hmm. in, the, in this recording, or we can do the exact opposite, which is collect all the things that you're likely not to attend not to. Not to attend to, yeah. Because that might be a great track for, for studying or for sleeping you know, while this thing is running in the background. Could you touch on how... Some of those advances in uh, big data and, and uh, collecting, like there's more and more audio being recorded now than ever before, right? Um, is your research sort of using some of these deep learning frameworks and things like that also, or is it not uh, related at all? No, it's, it's you know, built pretty significantly on, on deep learning paradigms, right? Um, a, a lot of the sort of computational implementations of these models of memory of attention and so on are enabled, uh, kind of enabled being running, uh, the, these things running in real time because of how quickly we can now do inference and model these higher level uh, principles via deep learning, basically. So yeah, it is, it is extremely uh, related. Uh, but what you touched upon is actually exactly the problem space that I'm trying to tackle. We know that um, basically nowadays, because of you know IoT enabled infrastructure, the more audio that people record for monitoring purposes for you know, whatever it is, the less likely they are to interact with it. Yeah, the more there is. That's true. Like <laughs> we all have like a million pictures on our phone yeah. we've taken, but you probably never look at them again. Yeah, yeah. With audio. And audio is worse because... Worse, actually, you can't even see it. <laughs> you can't see it. Right. But it's, it's because, of, because of that, because you can't see it, it's harder for people to... If you want to go back and find one thing in particular, that's, you know, that's what people are doing. Event detection. That's mm-hmm. separate. But people don't necessarily know how to navigate through hours and hours of audio recordings, right? In a, in a meaningful fashion kind of two ways to go about artificial intelligence nowadays, right? There's kind of two clans. One is kind of the majority is the, the group of researchers and scientists that are working that play a, a particular cognitive level of, or you know, strive to emulate a particular task that humans can do at the cognitive level of a three-year-old, right? Like classifying pictures. Pictures, worse than that, actually, right? Yeah, right. Identifying yeah. genre of music, so on. You know, and and it's important that we start there, of course. Yeah. But, but the objective is to basically simply compete with or use the standards of a human at a particular cognitive level, 
and ensure that, you know, and, and, and use this as a baseline to be able to compare your network and see if we can do as well, right? There are, a, you know, a not so vocal, but a smaller kind of <laughs> group of researchers more on, on the, kind of on the, the border between cognitive science and, and AI who are looking to work on artificial intelligence problems as a way of gaining more insight into the way the human mind actually works. Um, and to me, I feel like that is A, the, the more interesting kind of side of the problem, but also significantly more difficult. Um, Trying to understand and deconstruct the workings of the brain yeah. and mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway. Taking a positive approach to it, you're right. I mean, there's so much that we can actually deconstruct and learn and maybe address some of the challenges around dementia and whatnot. Let me, sorry for jumping all over a little bit, uh, bear with me, but like going back, because you brought up this idea of understanding the mind and the brain and other things. What tactics do you use to sort of uh, maybe brain hacks? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think for me, undergrad was, was probably that time, um, ah. sort of the time of, of most stress in my life. Um, had to do with the, the struggles of leaving home for the first time and being in a new place and living in a dorm. You know, all the social pressures as well as you know, trying to keep your grades up. I don't know. I think I resort. I would resort to the to the simplest thing. So that would involve for me a lot of um, music, in terms of just taking time out to sit down and sing. You know, allows me to pick up the pieces a little bit and, and kind of revisit a, a mental thread that has been particularly exhausting. Do you also practice any like meditation or any of that sort? Um, I would actually kind of do meditation in, in an interesting way, which is, mm. so for me, kind of just sitting down and sitting in silence was yeah. um, really hard because I, you know, spend the majority of my day sitting in one place thinking, right? And then kind of doing the same thing as a, as a Kanye exercise wasn't particularly productive for me. So I would often, uh, so we were right on the Charles River here. Yeah. And I would often walk to the river and just stand by the river or take a walk along the river as some sort of, so that's a interesting point. So I mean, it's like meditation doesn't necessarily mean sitting and closing your eyes, but it's it could be something else that changes, like um, task switching. Uh, if you're sitting all day, it's a great like yeah, just get out and take a walk and smell the roses, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Nature is a great reminder of. Uh, you know, things that are bigger than you, things that, ah. that are either always moving or always present, right? And to, to kind of keep that juxtaposed with whatever whatever's bothering you at that period of time is, is a good reminder of this crucial pass. Yep. Or uh, is there something that you do as a routine? Is there something that you would do? I know people, I'm sure you've heard of people say, yep, the first thing I do after I wake up, I just meditate for three minutes or I chant something transcendental, whichever, um, or, um, you know, I don't look at the phone for the first hour. Uh, are there routines that you've picked up over time uh, that you try and stick to? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this, this taking a walk by the river thing is, uh, that's one thing. But I mean, this sounds really silly, but um, every morning after I'm up, you know, showered, whatever, um, I have a cup of coffee. But during the time that I have a cup of coffee. Cup of joe is always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> cannot function without my coffee. Is there filter coffee or South Indian filter coffee? <laughs> it's, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, the Indian instant coffee. Yes. Really, yeah, the point is not the, the coffee itself. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm taking the time to, to drink my coffee, yeah. period of time every morning, and it, it actually lasts for you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Yes. Like, force myself not to engage with my phone and I'm most fresh. It's really important for me to sit down with my thoughts um, about the previous day and about what I'm going to do for today. And kind of, do you jot them down or is there something like, do you actually write the thoughts down or how do you record them? I mean, during that period of time, it's literally just me in silence taking the, the as, as long as my coffee lasts. Basically. <laughs> um, I don't write anything. I don't listen to anything. Uh, talk to anyone. It's just my focus time with, with my thoughts. And that's once a day. It's, I don't really have that time again. It's powerful. I mean, 15 minutes, not too far, not too long. So people don't have to complain. I don't have that kind of time. I'm too busy. Um, just, and just trying to not do any other things just sip coffee and let your thoughts so it's sort of like being mindful or just observing what's coming across yeah right um and on that note of mindfulness and being uh, are there people books that sort of stand out to you that so interestingly enough um I like to, to read and write a lot, but I often actually kind of like the plague. I stay away from these kind of books that are, you know, talk about mm. personality traits or, I mean, for me, it's just really hard for me to, to sit down and read those things and process them. Oh. For me, the sort of you know, didactic learning or the sort of didactic tone of, of books about these things, sometimes it, it just doesn't resonate with me and I'd much rather be off in my world reading you know, poetry or whatever it is but yeah mm-hmm. Any, anything that stands out like any line or a particular poem or a poet i don't know if i can quote any lines but yeah sort of actually the very same space of of poets um i really like wordsworth Eliot. um on the sufi side of things i read a lot of translations of, oh. of rumi of hafiz of bulisha in terms of the philosophy of a poem one of the things that I'd like to learn or, you know, talk about and see what, where your mind is at in terms of loving kindness in what you do on a daily basis. Um, however frustrated and crazy your life might be, uh, how do you bring that kind of calmness or kindness in the way you say things or the way you act? I mean, I think for me, it's kind of two, two perspectives on the the problem. Uh, one is the simple idea that every action has a reaction. And so if somebody's behaving a, a particular way. Um, Newton's third law. Is... <laughs> Newton's third law. <laughs> of course. I see. If someone is behaving a particular way, uh, a particular way, it's you know, likely motivated by 
some other event or something else that has transpired in their day or in their life or some other context that is hidden to me. As a third. Mm. And perhaps if I knew the full story, there would be some sort of some way for me to connect the dots and yeah. what I'm seeing. For the most part, we don't have that information, but kind of that thought process allows me to give, I try to always give yeah. as, as a sort of more rational way of, of thinking about why we should kind of deliver kindness or, or compassionate despite what we're getting in return. Um, that's maybe one thing. And um I know this, this sounds cliche, but to me, that's something really important, which is this idea that if I believe very strongly in a, in a higher being and in, in this idea mm -hmm. of God and that, that God really is present in me and present in every human being that I will interact with. If I do something offensive, if I react rudely, impolitely, interacting with a being that's much more divine than I can kind of perceive at that point in time. I try to keep that in mind, but... And as long as you're conscious of and have the thought process as a second nature, it helps. And, and just to touch on like spirituality, how does that play into this? Your take on a practical spirituality in daily life uh, versus spirituality as a ritual? Yeah, I mean, I, I have time that I set aside. I mean, I definitely carve out chunks of time in a week or in a month to do some of these more maybe involved ritualistic things uh -huh. like going to the temple or going to bhajans or these things uh, are things that I actively enjoy doing and as you take the limit for me spirituality is something that moves with me right it's this, this idea of being aware of the presence of a god or a higher being throughout your day of realizing that all of your actions have reactions and implications just a few rapid Fire questions. You don't have to answer them in a rapid manner, but I just had a few. <laughs> you can take your time to answer them, but just uh, what do you want the world to remember, remember you for? Someone who was a sort of medium or a vehicle for spreading joy, who just ah. could walk into a room and just put smiles on the faces of the people around. If people remember me for that, then I think I. <laughs> Lived all I wanted to. Yeah. Uh, is there someone you admire and aspire to be like, or my grandmother? Her her outlook on life is 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 very simple. It's mm. very this very simplistic view of the world that good brings good and yeah. bad brings bad. Um, it's it's so, super simple. We make it so complicated. It's just super simple. And and this view of the world that's very much guided by kind of the tenets of our faith snapshots into mythology, into our epics, into our literature, um, sort of guiding principles for the simple black and white. That is, that is the way she views life. Yeah. Um, you said you would drop everything for a jam session? Absolutely. I mean, drop everything in the sense of you know, not give up my degree or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, drop whatever it is I'm doing at that period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Jamming to me is sitting there and, and singing or playing an instrument for yourself is, is kind of an important meditative experience for me but i think the joy of music comes from sharing it with other people um, sharing with the sharing with a lot of people yeah kind of, yeah. of this participatory yeah sharing the joy with others that's what makes it interesting exactly yeah i think the energy you get out of that kind of, of synergy of musicians together in a room just just having fun with necessarily 
not with any structure necessarily yeah. Um, yeah. is is a is an energy that it's a high for me that I can't beat. <laughs> like if you could write something on a full moon that the whole world can see, what would you write? I could write something for the whole world to see. I wish I had some time to think about this. <laughs> you can come back to it later. You can come back to it. Um, Maybe I'll jump to the next one. Do you feel sometimes that you're in a box and you want to get out of it to go to the next level? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I think in a few different angles, um, being in Boston, being at a, a top gear technical institution, sometimes feel like you're in an echo chamber. You're hearing <laughs> back a lot of who you are and what you believe in. Sometimes that's, it's nice, it's comforting. I've obviously been in the same physical place and the same institution now for so long. Mm. Certainly looking forward to, to growing in that sense, maybe after graduation and moving away from Boston. Did you have challenges in school growing up as a first gen? Sure. I mean, <laughs> many of us that went to public high schools in, in suburbia in, in New York or in the US, this is something that people are familiar with, which is that you kind of lead this double life. You, you go to school, you know, nine double to five. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think except for one other student, I don't think there were any other South Asians in my year. Um, the majority was Caucasian. So I don't think we had many African-American students or Hispanic students at all, actually. Um, and so you are one person in that setting. There's certain things that you can't say or certain things that you just don't bring up in conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, the clock strikes five or whatever it is and you come home and you're with your family and it's like you've been transplanted to India for the next eight hours. <laughs> right? home, yeah. The parents are speaking Telugu, we're eating South Indian food, we're dressed in a particular way, we're watching Indian movies, whatever it might be. Right, right. It's it all over again. So that yep. dichotomy can prove frustrating occasionally maybe but i think in some ways it was it was a really good experience to yeah. kind of have both of these things yeah it's it's, it's enriching actually yeah it, it's 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 just not one it's two it's and two different completely different way of looking at things in some aspects would you what would you write on a full moon if you could write something it could be a word it could be a poem it could be a slogan, it could be whatever, just a message that you want to share with people. Um, if, it, if it doesn't have to be something that is like, you know, meaningful advice, no, but just something that... It can that be goofy. can be goofy. Of course. Um, I'd write, life is a song, sing it. Awesome. Life is a song, sing it. What is it that you truly believe in that maybe very few people on the planet believe in? I can think of something, but it's not really, you know, tech-oriented or like... It doesn't have to be, yeah. It can company. be completely, yeah. It's like a personal, a, a very strong and personal belief. Being family is a gift from God. Staying family is an active choice. That's a great place to end. <laughs>